0: Welcome back to the Daily Devotion. My name is Kevin Hale. I'm the pastor of Christ Church Conway, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America here in Conway, Arkansas. The Daily Devotion is a time for us to be strengthened in our faith through the study of Scripture and theology. At present, we're working our way through the book of Esther. It's an incredible story full of all kinds of plot twists and intrigue and, and plots against people and what's going to happen. And I mean, it would make a really a fantastic movie in, in that sense, but it's not just written for entertainment. As we read this book, the irony that we've noted before is that God is never mentioned in this book, yet this book seems to be written to show us that he does, in fact, providentially rule over all things, that his will isn't undone, that, that even when he is seemingly absent from a literary perspective he is in complete control. And in fact this morning as we look at Esther chapter 3 what we're going to see is that this providence of God isn't confined just to the local events in this story but actually reaches way back into Israel's history. That even the tension that is set up here between Haman and Mordecai that it's presented in historical terms that dip back to King Saul, and even back to King Amalek, the very first king to attack and try to bring Israel to an end in the book of Exodus. So we see that God's providence isn't just local, but that he is actually ruling over all of history to bring about his purposes in and through and for his people of which we are now in Christ counted apart. So let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in to Esther chapter 3. Father, again, I ask for your help as we look at your word, as I read your word, as, as I expound on your word. I pray that you would give me wisdom by your spirit, that you would give us all ears to hear, that we might understand your word, that we might be taught more and more to trust you as the God who rules all of history. We ask this in Christ our Savior's most precious name. Amen. We're going to read all of uh, Esther chapter 3. It's only 15 verses, but it's 15 verses in narrative, and sometimes those verses tend to be a little bit longer. So hang with me as we read through this section of the story of Esther, beginning in Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Well, yet another character here is introduced. This time it's Haman and his minions that are introduced, and their plot is introduced. It's what we know of the story of Esther, that Haman and Mordecai didn't see eye to eye, to put it lightly, as we're going to see in just a moment. And this leads to Haman's plot to destroy not just Mordecai, but all the Jews in the land. But what we begin to see here, if we're familiar with the Old Testament story, is that there's historical tensions that are at work here. Haman is introduced as an Agagite. The Agagites were the people that Saul failed to defeat in, uh, in 1 Samuel 15. And, and actually, it's interesting, he won the war, but he was supposed to utterly annihilate them, but he let King Agag live instead of annihilating them. He disobeyed the Lord's commands and let this king, who is apparently the namesake or, or, or the, the great ancestor Of Haman, he let him live. And so Haman is introduced as an Agagite. Remember, though, earlier when Mordecai was introduced, he was introduced as the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now, if you remember the story, Saul also was a son of Kish. So here we have this kind of republication of this historic battle between Saul and King Agag. However, it goes even deeper than that. If we go back, we see that King Agag was an Amalekite. He was the king of the Amalekites at that time. And when we look back in Israel's history, we find that the Amalekites are historic. They're ancient enemies of the people of Israel. In fact, as Karen Jobes points out, we see in the book of Exodus that the Amalekites are the first people to attack Israel to try and destroy them. So this battle that is set up between Haman and Mordecai and and Haman's plot to utterly destroy the Jews is no new program. This is an ancient plan that has never come to fruition, mind you, but has also never died out. And here it is resurfaced once again. And so we see God's providence in this story, not just in the immediate events that are happening, but looking back over Israel's history, looking back into even more ancient times, we see these chess pieces being set in place for what was to come we see God providentially ruling even over the hard bits of Israel's history, even over the the hard places of the life of his people to establish even this moment over which we've already been seeing through the book of Esther that God is providentially ruling to bring about his purposes. But there's more as we look at this story. We see that The issue here is that Mordecai would not bow down to Haman because he had been set in in authority, the highest authority in the land after the king. Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. All it says is because he was a Jew. Now, we know that there were times where the Jews bowed to other kings, not out of worship or or anything like that, but just out of respect. And so it's not necessary that Haman doesn't bow down. That Mordecai doesn't bow down to Haman, but it may be that Haman or that Mordecai recognizes the ancient history here and is like, I'm absolutely not bowing and bowing down to an Amalekite. I'm not bowing down to an Agakite. We've got old blood flowing between us. It's not happening. This, of course, sparks an incredible fury in Haman, and he seeks to destroy not only Mordecai, but all of his people, the Jews, because Mordecai had made it known that he was a Jew. Now, remember, Esther still has not made it known to the king that she is. That's a key point in the story. But Haman is seeking to destroy the Jews, and, and even the months that are listed. In the first month, the month of the Passover, Haman starts trying to figure out the plan to destroy them, and they roll lots, they cast lots. This was their belief in faith, that they could cast lots and determine good times to do things in, in which they would succeed, and so they, they, they cast lots through all the months to see what would be the best, and they come to the last month, Adar, and that's when they decide it's going to happen. And so he goes and he strikes this deal with King Ahasuerus. again. We see this king who so you know gleefully pines for absolute authority, being manipulated by the people that he has put in power, and he seeks to to have this plan put in place, and he is given the king's seal in order to do it. And so, in the first month. The month of the Passover, the month in which the Jews mark with celebration God's deliverance out of Egypt. In that first month, it's announced that on the last month, they are to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated. All of them. Young and old, women and children, in one day. <laughs> Imagine you're in this month of celebration, of looking back and remembering God delivers us from our enemies. And then here's this new announcement. In a year, there's coming a day. At the end of this year, there's coming a day in which every Jew will be destroyed, killed, and annihilated in a single day. Takes some of the shine off of the Passover, perhaps, or perhaps it, you know, causes you to look and say, you know what, God has delivered us before, he will deliver us again. Certainly that's what the response of faith should be, but we're not to that point in the story just yet. Right now we're up to this point where the destruction of the Jews has once again been announced. And notice that the casualness at the end of the story. They've just decreed that this people be utterly destroyed. And it says, the king and Haman sat down to drink. Let's, let's have a cold one. Let's crack them and just enjoy the evening together. Meanwhile, Susa, it says, is thrown into utter turmoil. So there's the piece of the story that we're looking at. All of a sudden, somehow in God's providence, in his ruling and overruling and, and, and working out his will, A decree has been issued with the king's signet ring, that his people be utterly destroyed. Now, we look at stuff like this, and we have to remember this. God has not lost control of the situation. At this point in the story, of course, we know what's to come. But at this point in the story, if you were hearing it for the first time, you might be going, what? Wait a minute. Where is this God who is in control? Where is this God who knows the plans that he has for his people, plans to to prosper you, plans to give you a hope and a future? Where is he? What we're going to see is that he's there. He's at work. And while Haman may think that he is bursting the bonds, to use the language of Psalm 2, we will see that he will be utterly destroyed. Now, tomorrow we're going to come back and we're going to look at one particular part of how Haman pulled this plot off and what it was that that he said to the king in order to destroy the Jews. And, And just think about the accuracy of this and how it is that the enemies of the people of God tend to work. But for now, we need to be reminded that God is at work. And even when we think chaos has ensued, God has not lost control but he is bringing about his good, pleasing, and perfect will according to his pleasure for his people. Amen.